You can go ahead as that's going out. You can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 12. Have a few more here if they're needed. All right, we're doing a lot of passing out to get going. I got one more thing I need to pass out here. Let me uh, say just a couple things quickly. I want to give, I got a hundred of these, and they're all different. I got a hundred of these, and they're, every single one of them are different. If you are, to make sure they get out, I want to make sure they go out to as many people as possible, spread out across the room. If you're a married couple, maybe you can just take one and everybody else can grab one. And we, I want to get all 100 of these out. I need to get several guys, girls, anybody want to help me here? And let's get these out. Got a lot of passing out this morning. And I'll explain more about this. I'll explain more about this later. If you're a married couple, just get one. <clears throat> Otherwise, let's spread these out. You got them all. Thank you, buddy. Like I said, you're welcome to glance at them now, but don't feel like you need to read them in depth at the moment because I'll explain those more in just a little while. If you don't know this, we're coming through the book of Acts together. As a church, coming through the book of Acts together. So if you haven't turned already, go ahead and go in your Bible to Acts chapter 12. As soon as these get passed out. And don't lose those, because I'm actually going to ask you to keep those all week long. So don't lose those, please. Don't let any kids turn them into airplanes. Appreciate your patience as we go out. We got Aaron working extra hard today. We're going to let you sit down in a minute, brother. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us as we meditate on Acts 12 together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Open our eyes, open our ears, let us see. Lord, even the lost world can intellectually understand some things that are in this chapter, but God, we want to see past that. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. Open our eyes that we might see glory, to see the glory of who you are, God, almighty, unstoppable, all-powerful. Help us to see you, Lord, in that light. You alone are holy. And though the eye of sinful man, your glory may not see. God, you're holy, holy, holy. Help us to see you, Lord, as we open your word. God, thank you so much for bringing us together as a family around these truths. And as brothers and sisters, God, I pray that you would move us as a family. Move us to worship you. Move us to obey you. You told us, God, there's a way we can be deceived if we're hearers of your word but not doers of it. So God, help us not to be like that. Help us to hear as those that are just ready to obey. Give us hearts bowed down to you, bowed down to your word right now so that we can hear in a way that's just ready to obey you, Lord. God, please work through my lack of clarity. Please, God, work through my weak tongue. And be exalted in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right, so coming through the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 12, and there's something I want you to understand before we read this passage. We're going to stand up and read this whole passage together in just a moment, but before we do it, I just want you to understand something, that Acts 12 is, is sort of like a bridge, okay? It's a bridge. You're going from Acts 10 and 11, where the door was kicked open to the Gentiles, to the nations, and it stands as a bridge between that and Acts 13, where there's about to be an explosion out of the church at Antioch into all the nations of the earth. That's the idea. So it's a bridge from the door's been kicked open to the, na- to the nations, and then when you get to Acts 13, we're going to see uh, three missionary journeys unfold of the gospel going out to unreached people groups all over the world. And Acts 12 stands like a bridge for us, okay? And just to let you see what I mean, chapter 11, verse 30 where we ended off last week, it says, And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So at the beginning of our passage, we have Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, are headed to Jerusalem to take some, to take some resources there to help these believers, the church in Jerusalem. Now the way our passage is going to end, chapter 12, verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, here's what's interesting. Our passage begins and ends, like bookends, with Paul and Barnabas going to Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas leaving Jerusalem, and the stuff in between has nothing to do with Paul and Barnabas. So this scripture, chapter 12, is like a bridge between the door being kicked open to the Gentiles and the gospel, the gospel explosion into all nations. So the question is, what lesson are we meant to learn from Acts chapter 12? What are we supposed to take away from Acts chapter 12? I want you to be thinking about that as we read this. If you're able, and if you have a baby on the hip, don't worry about it, just stay there. But if you're able, would you stand up, kind of like they did in Nehemiah 8, and let's read God's word together. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. 
And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory. He did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. You can be seated. Now, I want you to understand this. Think about this for a minute. The book of Acts is all about um, the Word of God increasing and multiplying, right? We've been coming through the book of Acts together, and it's about the Word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus, the message of Christ, about it increasing and multiplying as we read in verse 24, the Word of God increased and multiplied. So it's just going everywhere. But here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there's no obstacles in the way. It doesn't mean that there's no opposition to the spread of the Word of God. So this is really important. As you begin to take the book of Acts and you apply it to your life, it's really important that you understand that, yes, you want to be asking God, God, let the Word of God spread through my life. But here's what that can't mean. It can't mean there'll be no obstacles. It cannot mean that there, there will be no opposition to you or to God's Word as you seek to spread the Word of God all over the world. Now, that's what Acts chapter 12 is about. It's about opposition to the Word of the Lord. Opposition to the Word of God. And therefore, if we, the church, are the people that carry the Word of God to the world, then this is about opposition to the church of Jesus Christ, even opposition to Christ Himself. This is what Acts chapter 12 is all about. And there's all kind of oppos opposition. Uh, there can be violent opposition from a government. That's what we're reading about in Acts 12. Uh, there can be intellectual opposition. There can be all kinds of opposition that's out there, but, but all of them can be termed as this. And I want to just put this phrase before you. I want it to stick in your brain because this is, this is what all opposition to God is this. It's impotent opposition. Impotent opposition. It means powerless opposition. All opposition to God and His plan is powerless opposition. It's, it's ultimately ineffective opposition. It's ineffective, impotent opposition. Now let me just say a few things about that. The last word of the book of Acts, the very last word, okay? It, in the original writing of the book of Acts, the last word is this word unhindered or without hindrance is the way it's translated I believe in the ESV and the idea is that the, the message of the kingdom of God the word of the Lord is moving forward last word of the book of Acts unhindered last word without hindrance God's word is going into all the earth it's doing exactly what God said it would do Unhindered is the last word. Now, now this does not mean no obstacles. It just means no effective obstacles can stand in the way. It doesn't mean no opposition to the Word of God. It just means no effective opposition, only, only impotent opposition. 
That's all that exists when it comes to opposition to God. Now, we see this all through the book of Acts, right? So, so Acts chapter 7, Stephen is martyred. Acts chapter 8, a great persecution arises against the church. The people are being persecuted. And because of that, the believers are having to flee Jerusalem. And what's happening as they flee Jerusalem? What does it say? They preached the word of the Lord everywhere they went. Opposition against the church, opposition, suffering, martyrdom, kill them. And what happens? Through that suffering, the word of God spreads everywhere. You can try to oppose God and his plan, but it's ineffective. It will not ultimately work. What about Acts chapter 9? Here's what we'll do. We'll take the greatest persecutor of Christianity, send him to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. Send him to Damascus to arrest and kill the Christians. Ineffective opposition. What happens? The greatest persecutor of the church is turned into the greatest missionary that ever walked the earth. Turning people to Christ. Ineffective opposition. Gamaliel tried to tell them this. Many did not listen. Listen to this from Acts chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. Listen. Gamaliel says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Some of these Christians. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel warned him, you might be found opposing God. Opposition against God is it's ineffective and it's pointless. Now, we've seen this all throughout history. Uh, I, I was listening to a sermon about opposition to God and specifically about Acts 12. And John MacArthur had this to say. He said, history, history is strewn with the shattered, the shattered shells of men and women who throw themselves against God like eggs shattered against granite cliffs. I thought that was a good illustration. It's pointless to come against God. Just some examples of that. The, the Roman Emperor Nero. Remember him? First century. First century AD. The Roman Emperor, Emperor Nero. Uh, he burned Christians. He tortured Christians. He fed Christians to the beast to kill them, even for entertainment. He was a wicked man that led out a massive persecution against Christians. In fact, the reason, one of the reasons that the Apostle Peter writes that epistle, 1 Peter, is because of the persecution coming down on the church from the Emperor Nero. And so you imagine reading 1 Peter, and you got all this stuff about how a Christian should suffer and how he should face persecution, even martyrdom and death. And at one point in this letter that Peter writes about the persecution coming down through Nero, at one point he says this in chapter 1, verse 24, he says, All flesh is grass. All the glory of man is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that remained true because here's the reality. Nero is dead. Suicide at 30 years old. The Roman Empire is dead. It's done away with, but the word of the Lord continues on forever. Ineffective opposition. I read something this week also about a man named Voltaire in, in the 1700s. He, was a, he, he gave not violent opposition to God, but, but intellectual opposition. He, he led many, many people away from Christ. He was a man who hated Christianity, and he mocked Christians. This is what he did. He mocked Christianity. He was a philosopher and a, 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 a prolific writer. This is what he did. Oh, he's a very famous man. And he said, he said that 50 years after his death, people will have forgotten the very name of Christ. 50 years after his death. This is in the 1700s. 15 year, 50 years after his death, people will have forgotten the very name of Christ. And according to Derek Thomas, 50 years after his death, his very home in Geneva was the was the uh, was the like the, the place where they printed off the Genevan Bibles. Booyah. <laughs> I'm talking to you about impotent opposition, ineffective opposition. Let me show you the ultimate ineffective opposition. Listen to this. 
Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 2. Ultimate, ineffective, impotent opposition to God. Here's the ultimate picture of it, right? They opposed Jesus and killed him. They opposed him. We opposed Jesus. We opposed God and we murdered him. We slaughtered him. And listen to this in Hebrews 2. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Talking about we're all flesh and blood. And since that's true. He himself, Jesus. Likewise partook of the same things. You realize that? That the Son of God who created the universe took on flesh and blood like we have. And or so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you hear that? Ultimate opposition to God. The Son of God comes to rescue and we oppose Him. They kill Him. They murder Him. They humiliate Him and hang Him on a cross. And, and, and it's ineffective. You know why it's, it's ineffective? Because that very death that, that, that highlights opposition to God, that very death was used by God to destroy the evil one. In fact, that very death was used to set every one of us free. We can be set free from our sins because Jesus died for us at the cross. Ultimate example of impotent opposition to God. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 12. That's why I'm telling you this. Because in Acts chapter 12, we see an example of ineffective opposition to God. Now, I want to talk about the main point. If you're looking on your study guide there, I want to talk to you about the main point of Acts chapter 12. The unstoppable word in the midst of intense opposition. The unstoppable word. The unstoppable word in the midst of intense opposition. Opposition. Now, there's a lot of sub-points that we could gather. There's a lot of uh, sub-point kind of takeaways that we could gather from Acts chapter 12, and all of them are important, and uh, all of them uh, relate in some way to the main point. I want to talk about the main point, but, but there's a lot of sub-points. Let me just give you some examples of the, the sub-points that, that we can take from Acts chapter 12. Number one, we could take away the faith of Peter here. We can take away an example for us in the faith of Peter. If you look at verses uh, 6 and 7, I believe, yeah, verse 6, verse 7. The night before he's about to be executed by Herod, what is he doing? He says he's sound asleep. He's so sound asleep that when the angel comes into the cell, the lights shine and he's still asleep. The angel has to poke him in the side to wake him up. Now, what if you knew you were going to be executed? Tomorrow morning, how would you sleep tonight? And so there's a, a sub-point here, the, the faith of Peter that we ought to be encouraged by. Second thing, the fervent praying of the early church. The fervent praying of the early church. Look at verse 5. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. Listen, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church of Jerusalem is praying. They're crying out to God on behalf of Peter. Look at verse 12. When he realized, this is when Peter got released out of prison. God got him out of prison. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Many were gathered together in their prayer. These people are crying out to God. These people are praying. This is corporate prayer. Over and over in the scriptures, we read about the people of God coming together to pray. We might have more in the Word of God about corporate prayer than we do even about private prayers, individuals. But these people coming together to pray. And this is an all-night prayer meeting. Think about it. It says at night, and Peter is asleep, and he gets woken up, and he goes, and they're still praying. And when he leaves, it says the following day, and the sun had come up. The idea here is these people are praying, they're crying out to God. And we can be encouraged. This is a sub-point, but we can be encouraged by this, right? To, to cry out to God as a church. Are we a people that come together often in corporate prayer? Do you have that in your life where you meet together with the body of Christ and you cry out to the Lord? You love that time. 
Third, another sub-point would be the dangers of self-exaltation, right? We just read about it. You got Herod here, and they're, they're looking at Herod, the people of Tyre and Sidon. They're looking at Herod, and they're saying, that's the voice of a God and not a man. And it says, God struck him down because he did not give glory to God. He did not give glory to God. God struck him, and he was eaten by worms and died. And here's a lesson to take away, the dangers of self-exaltation. The dangers of self-exaltation. You know, really, pride and, and my glory, it really aligns you. It doesn't, it doesn't align you with God. It aligns you with Satan. It's satanic. You know that about Satan? That Satan was a created angel. And you go read Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and you get the beginnings of his rebellion when he rises up and he wants to be like God. He's got pride because of his beauty. And this, this angel, this exalted angel created by God turns, and he is Satan, the enemy of God. And so when we exalt ourselves like him, it is satanic. In fact, you're the worst kind of thief. You're a glory thief if you exalt yourself. The dangerous self-exaltation. A fourth thing you can take away at some point would be God's response to injustice. Think about James being murdered. James has his head cut off by this wicked man, Herod. Who is this man to come against God's apostle, God's child? And he cuts his head off. He sheds innocent blood. And, and you imagine people at that time, and they're crying. If you go read Psalm 10, they're saying, God, how long? How long will you stay your hand? How long will the wicked get away? And we get a little lesson here. Is it gives us a... A view to the end of Herod's life where he is eaten by worms and he dies. And you can really take it further than that as he burns in hell forever. It's God's response to an injustice. So all, 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 here's what I'm trying to get you to see. These are all good sub-points to take away from Acts 12. But what's the main point? What's the main point? It's really important that we as a church, that we gather together again and, and again around the main point of the text of Scripture. If we don't, we are not devoting ourselves to expositional preaching. Or to say it in a more biblical way, we're not devoting ourselves to the apostles' doctrine. Acts 2.42 says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. We want to be like them, right? Well, we got to know them. What is the main point of the text? Not what is the main point that the preacher wants to give and how can he kind of shore up his points by using the scripture? Not that, but we're reading the scripture saying, what does God intend to say to us? What is the main point or main points of the passage? It's extremely important that over and over again that I stand before you with that responsibility. 1 Timothy 4.13 commands me to read the text to teach the text and to exhort with the text. And you are commanded to hold your leaders to that standard. So here's a question. What's the main point? What's the main point of Acts chapter 12? Now, if I had to give it to you as a title, if I had to give it to you as a title, as I did at the top of your study guide there, if I had to give it to you as a title, I'd say it like this. The unstoppable word in the midst of intense opposition. It's the main point of Acts 12, the unstoppable word in the midst of intense opposition. Now, let me say it this way. Opposition will surely come. Opposition will come. We're on this mission from God, and opposition will surely come, but God's word is unstoppable. Nothing can stop his plans. Nothing can thwart his mission. Nothing. And that's the point of Acts Chapter 12, there's a lot of implications of this that are, that are obvious. The implication of, um, so if you align yourself then with the spread of the word of the Lord, you win. Or say it negatively, if you oppose God and his mission, you will lose. Obvious implications here. You align yourself with the word, you win. You oppose God, you lose. You align yourself like Peter, you win. You oppose God like Herod, and you lose. Now, why do I say the unstoppable word in the midst of intense opposition? Why do I say that's the main point of this passage? The first place you can see it is just by tracing out what it's saying about Herod here. Just understand, try, try as we look at Acts 12, try to understand the flow of thought 
as we just kind of glance at Acts chapter 12 again and think about what's here. Try to understand the flow of thought here, okay? In Acts chapter 12, we are abruptly introduced to a powerful king named Herod. It's right here in verse 1. About that time, you know you got Paul and Barnabas coming in Jerusalem and leaving Jerusalem. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So you're abruptly introduced to a powerful king named Herod. Now who is this man? He's an evil man. He's a wicked man. He's a, a, a self-exalting man. He's, he's, he's in a line of these Herods, different Herods, Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, on and on. He's, he's a part of these, these Herods that as we read through the Gospels and the book of Acts, we see that we're constantly opposing the spread of the word of the Lord. So he's a part of this line of people. He's Herod. And he's a powerful man. We see a whole other region, so it's not Israel, but a whole other region, Tyre and Sidon, are actually pandering to him, trying to get his favor. Herod is a powerful man here. He's a powerful man. Now, what did he do? It says here in verse 2 that he killed James. That's a big deal. He killed an apostle of Christ. He killed one of the three closest men to Jesus as he walked the earth. One of the sons of thunder, James, the brother of John. He killed him. He cut his head off. He beheaded this man. What else did he do? He arrested Peter. Big deal here, right? He arrested Peter. Peter, the most fruitful preacher of the gospel up to this point in the book of Acts. The most fruitful preacher of the gospel. The word of God is going forward through his mouth. And Herod arrests him with an intent to kill him just like he killed James. He wants to kill He's arrested him, but he wants to kill Peter. And, of course, we'll come back to what happens in Peter's story. But here's what I want you to understand. Here's Herod opposing the word of God. He's killed James, the preacher of the word. He's arrested Peter, the preacher of the word. And then look at, look at verse 20. I want you to view this as a seemingly random story. We're hearing about Herod. We're hearing about the church in Jerusalem. We're hearing about Peter. And then all of a sudden it says... Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Here's these people from another region. Where'd this come from? What's, what is this story here for? The people of Tyre and Sidon said they came to him with one accord. They began, they began kind of uh, pandering to Herod. It, it says that, that as Herod gives a speech to them, they begin to shout, that's the voice of a God and not of a man. And of course, as I said a moment ago, because he didn't give glory to God, he, it says he's eaten by worms and dies. Why is this story here? We're, we're reading about the story. It, it doesn't really fit in the flow of where the gospel's going. Why do we get this story, this seemingly random story about Herod in another region being, being killed by God? Why are we reading about that? And you get the answer as you look at verse 24. But, here's the other side of the story. It helps you understand the first side. But, the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you get it? Herod, the one who opposes the word of the Lord, the one that murdered James, the one that arrests Peter, he's dead, eaten by worms. But guess what the word of God continues to do? It increases, it grows, it multiplies, it moves out to the nations. The unstoppable word in the midst of intense opposition. He killed James, but the word of the Lord moves forward. He arrests Peter, but the word of God keeps moving. Herod's dead, eaten by worms, but the word of God continues on. The unstoppable word of God. It's the main point of Acts chapter 12. Now, we get a living example of this. As we look at the life of, um, of Peter and the church right in the middle of Acts 12, we see Peter and his deliverance and the church and their response to the deliverance. We get a living example of the unstoppable word in the Jerusalem church and Peter's life right here. Now, Peter and the Jerusalem church were not unfamiliar with this idea of the unstoppable word. They had experienced firsthand that God's message cannot be thwarted, okay? They, they have experienced that. They understand that. 
You say, how do you know they understand that? Remember Acts chapter 11. The gospel goes to the Gentiles, right? In Acts 11, 17, Peter looked at these, the church of Jerusalem. Peter is looking at the church of Jerusalem, and he says to them, Who was I that I could stand against God? Sounds like Gamaliel, doesn't it? Who was I that I could stand against God? The word is moving to the Gentiles with or without me. Who was I to stand against God? Chapter 11, verse 18. They begin to glorify God saying, so that means that the gospel is going to the Gentiles, that God's given the Gentiles repentance unto life. They know about the unstoppable word of God. Again, in Acts chapter 11, the church in Antioch is planted, this Gentile church in Antioch. And it says the news of these things came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem. The news of these things came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem. This means they knew. They knew about the unstoppable word of God. There's nothing we can do to stop this. But here's what they also know. That doesn't mean there won't be opposition. There will be opposition. Their main preacher's in jail right now. Of course there'll be opposition. Now, Peter's deliverance, I think, is God's way of putting this unstoppable word, this unstoppable mission on display as he delivers Peter. Now, you think about Peter. He represents here the one that keeps, he preached the word and 3,000 souls were saved. He preached the word and another number came to be about 5,000. This is the most fruitful preacher of the word of God as the word of God has increased. And Herod has put him in jail. He's trying to silence him. He wants to kill him and shut his mouth. He wants to suppress the word of God. It looks like a hopeless situation. If you look at verse 4. When he had seized him, when he seized Peter, arrested him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Four squads of soldiers. Soldiers. That's four soldiers and his squad, 16 soldiers to guard this man so that they could work in a rotation all throughout the night to make sure there's always four woken eyes of soldiers watching this man to make sure he does not escape. This is a hopeless situation. He's in jail. They're going to kill him. And how's he going to get out of this? There's 16 soldiers guarding this man all throughout the night. It's hopeless. Look at verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, try to picture Peter here. Peter's sleeping between two soldiers. He's between two of these soldiers. Bound with two chains. So the two soldiers are there, and in case somehow he becomes the Hulk and overpowers them, there's, he's chained to them. He's chained to these, he's chained in this jail. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. So you got people, but these guard posts, the, the soldiers are watching the doors. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. This is what I want you to understand. In this hopeless situation, and all of a sudden it says that an angel shows up. And, and, and the light of that angel is filling up the cell, and he hits Peter on the side and says, Wake up. Put on your coat, put on your shoes. Let's go. We're going out. It says the chains fall off his hands. You see how amazing this is. The chains just fall off his hands. And then he goes through one guard post, through another guard post. He comes to the big iron gate, and it says it just opens of its own accord. It's so amazing that Peter's sitting there going, he doesn't even realize it's real. He thinks he's seeing a vision right now. It's not till he gets outside of the gate and the angel has left him. And I'm just imagining looking around going, what's next? When am I going to snap out of this dream? And then it says right here in verse 11. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel. He woke up, chains fell off, through one guard, through another guard, the gate opens on its own. He says, okay, I get it. I see what's happening now. God has rescued me from the hand of Herod, and he's rescued me from the expectation of the Jews. And here's, the, here's this visual representation for us, that nothing can stop the word of God. If it's God's will for a man to preach the gospel, nothing can stop him. Any, any, 
opposition that opposes God's word, God can just break it like a twig any moment he wants to. He can snap it in half. And this is what's being put on display for us right here. Now, Luke, as we read through the details of Peter and the local church in Jerusalem, Luke adds some details that he didn't have to add. In fact, he adds some humorous details that he really could have just left out, okay? We just saw a little bit. I, I believe that's some humorous detail, right? That Peter's sitting there and, and like, how much, how, how big of a role did Peter play in getting himself out of jail? He thinks he's in a dream at the moment. He didn't even understand. And, and, then he, and then he shows up at the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and he shows up at her house and he starts knocking on the gates. And it says Rhoda comes, Rhoda comes to the gates, and, and it doesn't say she opened it. It's, 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 she probably did something like what we do. Who is it? Peter probably said, it's me, because it says she recognized his voice. It's me. She recognized his voice. She's so filled with joy, get this, she doesn't open the door. She runs back into the prayer meeting where multitudes are gathered together in Mary's house. She goes back to the prayer meeting and she says, Peter's at the door. To which the people praying for the release of Peter say, you're nuts. And she's like, no, no, I'm serious. He's at the door. Must be his angel. Seriously, you're praying for him to be released. And it says, and Peter keeps knocking. So you imagine him, he's sitting there and he's thinking, man, the angel got me out of prison and I can't even get in the prayer meeting. And I believe that there's some humor that's intended to be placed here. The question is, what's the point? Why give these details? He didn't have to give that, those details. He could have Peter sitting there cracking his fingers saying, all right, God's about to get me out of this. Instead of dazed and confused. He could have had a church that responded to Rhoda and said, of course he's at the door. Go let him in. We've been praying for this. He could have, done, he could have laid these things out however he wanted to. But he adds these details, okay? He's just being truthful about what happened that night. And he, and he gives these details, these humorous details. Now, the question is why? Why include these details? And let me just um, let me present an idea to you. Let me submit something to you. I believe these humorous details are for the exaltation of God. For the exaltation of God. You say, what do you mean? It's kind of like the, uh, the Colombian missionary who reached an unreached people group, a dangerous, violent, unreached people group. He reached them with a the gospel. And everybody comes around him and says, man, you are so brave. You're so bold. You walked right into that Colombian jungle. You walked right in there and took the gospel to them. To which the Colombian missionary says, actually, I took a wrong turn, landed with this group of people, and I was scared out of my wits. And God just happened to guide me there. Now, why is he giving you those details? He didn't have to do that. He could have just said, that's right. Took the gospel to the unreached people groups. Did that. Violent group. Didn't care. But instead, he, he picks fun at himself a little bit. For what purpose? Why does the Columbia missionary do it? Why does he say, no, actually, I took a wrong turn, and I was scared half to death when I came across these people. I didn't actually go after them. They chased me down. Why does he tell them that? Because he's trying to communicate. This is about God. This is the glory of God. It's not about the Columbian missionary. It's not about Peter. It's not about the Jerusalem church. What we see here, we do see some good things in these people. But we also see the humanness of these people. And we walk away and we say, man, our God is glorious. Praise God that he answers earnest, zealous prayers, even though they might be mixed with a little unbelief. Praise God he uses people like Peter or like this weak Jerusalem church. And so I think the lesson to walk away with from these humorous details is that the word of God is unstoppable. Even though it's stewarded by weak people. So all this talk about the unstoppable word, okay? We're talking about all this unstoppable word stuff and, and, and ineffective opposition. Nobody can oppose the word of the Lord. And, and some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Ryan, you're trying to skip something here. There's a problem in this text that you're not acknowledging. You're, 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 you're trying to just skip right over a problem with this whole unstoppable word of God stuff. Ryan, what about James? 
What about James, verse 2? He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He beheaded James. What about James, right? Unstoppable word, huh? You align yourself with the spread of the word. Align yourself with that, and you win. But what about James? You're skipping over James here. God was able to deliver Peter from the shackles. He could deliver him from this. Was he unable to deliver James? Why didn't he get James out of this? What's going on here? What about James? And, I, and I'm, I'm really glad y'all asked me that. <laughs> because here's what I don't want us to walk away with. The word of God is unstoppable. Align yourself with the word of God and you win. And what that means is you might go to jail, but you will always be released. Now, we know God does that. We got three, three brothers in North Korea, right, that we've been praying, God, get them out of jail. God, get them out of jail in North Korea. We had connections with these brothers through our former missionary there in North Korea. God, get them out of jail. And we don't know for sure, but it sure seems like God's about to do it. So we know God can do that, but I don't want us to walk away thinking, unstoppable word of God, you win, you will always get out of jail. No, sometimes you'll die. Sometimes you suffer. Sometimes it'll be painful. What about James? So how do we reconcile these things? Align yourself with the word of God, the spread of the word, and you win. You might get your head cut off. How do we reconcile these things? Unstoppable word of God. Align yourself with it. You can't be stopped, but you might be beheaded for the faith. You might get martyred. How do we reconcile these things? And let me give an answer. God spreads his message through us, through the church of Jesus, sometimes by miraculous deliverances like Peter. And God spreads the message of his word through us, sometimes through martyrdom and through suffering, through death. God's going to maximize his glory in our life. That's just a reality. He is going to maximize his glory. God, whatever brings you the most glory in my life, do it. If it's deliver me from prison, do that. If it's allow me to have my head cut off by a madman, do that. Whatever it takes to get the most glory to you, God is going to maximize his glory in your life, whether by life or whether by death. Now, how do I know that? There's a lot of ways to know it. I want to mention three really quick ones. Romans chapter 8. Listen to this verse. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? How James died. You know, the sword. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can any of those things separate us? And what we see there is clearly that Christians face these sort of things. As it is written, for your sake, that's for your glory, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what we're like, slaughtered sheep for the glory of God. No. In other words, no, it can't separate us from love of Christ. Listen, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does it mean? We are, through all these things, sword, tribulation, danger, persecution, we are not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors, but hyper-conquerors, super-conquerors. What does it mean? What does it mean? If you have conquered a people, there they are, dead before you. You've conquered them. They're dead. They're done. But if you are more than a conqueror, those enemies rise up and serve you. We didn't just conquer. The Christian does not just conquer death or conquer persecution as in we just get through it. But rather those persecutions bow down and serve the glory of God through us. What about James? It, it spread the glory of God just in the same way Peter's deliverance did. That's what happens because James is more than a conqueror through Christ. Now we got examples of this. One example in the Bible I mentioned a moment ago. Stephen in Acts 7 is martyred. He's stoned to death. 
A great persecution arises against the church in Acts chapter 8. And what does God do through that? God uses that to spread the gospel to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That martyrdom and that great persecution bowed down to the will of God and actually accomplished his own purposes. Impotent opposition. Ineffective opposition. Another example that I love of this, a more modern day example, is in a guy named, maybe you hadn't heard of him, Joseph Son. I'm saying that right? A guy named Joseph Son. He's a pastor in Romania about the same time that Richard Wormbrandt was a pastor in Romania. He suffered some of the same persecutions and tortures that Richard Wormbrandt did, if you've heard of him. He was tortured by the communist regime that came through there, thrown into jail, starved, humiliating persecutions. And during one of his interrogation sessions, his biographer says that he told his torturers that spilling his blood would only serve to water the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine him looking at his torture. Spilling my blood will only water the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he understood this. That it's not, okay, Herod got one point through James and God got one point through Peter. It's one to one now. No, it's actually God gets all the points. He gets it all, every single bit of it because he advances his glory through Peter and he advances his glory through James. In his own words, Joseph son who understands this in his own words this is what he says I told the interrogator you should know that your supreme weapon is killing my supreme weapon is dying now here's how it works sir you know that my sermons are on tape all over the country and when you shoot me or crush me, whichever way you choose, you only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you killed me. Go on and do it. <laughs> he didn't kill him. <laughs> but Joseph saw and understood that when you look at James's death, it doesn't change the reality. The word of God is unstoppable in the midst of the most intense persecution and opposition. The word of God is unstoppable, even if it means your death, your martyrdom for the spread of the glory of God. Now, finally, let's talk about modern day opposition. I hope you know it's just as ineffective as Herod. Modern-day opposition. Just a few takeaways here, a little different than we normally do on these takeaways. Um, you, need to be, you need to make yourself aware. I want to encourage you, Grace Community Church, make yourself aware of modern-day Herods, modern-day Herod-like governments. You need to make yourself aware of things like this that are that's in our world. Just some ways you can do that if you're jotting some things down here. Uh, opendoorsusa.org. Opendoorsusa.org. That's a, a ministry from Brother Andrew. If you never read God's Smuggler, God's Smuggler, about, uh, about Brother Andrew's life smuggling Bibles into uh, uh, communist, the communist areas in the world. Um, a good while back. If you, if, if it's a good book to read, but this is his, his ministry here. They have something there called a watch list where they continue to update this watch list of the most uh, dangerous places to be as a Christian. In other words, the most Herod-like or Herod-like governments that, that are on the planet. And he keep, they keep a watch list of this. I'd encourage you to look at it. A lot of good things to look at there. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs. Another thing you can dig into a little bit, there's a, I believe their website is persecution.com. In fact, I think you can go on there and send you free, uh, 
uh, consistently send you free uh, magazines about what's going on in the world, a good way to make yourself aware. I'd encourage you to read something called, you know, get uh, uh, dads, get your families together and, and your kids, if you're comfortable with, with some intensity here, except some I know are more comfortable than others. But The Insanity of God by a guy named Nick Ripkin, go read that. The Insanity of God by Nick, Nick Ripkin is a good one to check out. So these are ways to make yourself aware. And I want to encourage everybody here to be a people that are aware of hair-like governments, hair-like men throughout this world. And in and, and what way does that seem to oppose the gospel? In effective opposition, but what way does it seem to oppose the gospel? And, and what, what does what we know about Acts 12, how does it affect the way we view that opposition? I want to encourage you to think through that on your own, by yourself. Now, what do we do with all this? Uh, David Platt preached a sermon, I think about five or six years ago. I just remember being at the beginning of, of Grace Community Church being planted. And he preached a sermon, and it's called Divine Sovereignty, the Fuel of Death-Defying Mission. It might be one of the sermons that I've heard on repeat, repeat more than any other. I would encourage you to go listen to it. But it's called Divine Sovereignty, the Fuel of Death-Defying Mission. Now, he, he's talking to a group of pastors, and in this sermon, he says that he wants to give one overarching truth. One overarching truth. And here's that one overarching truth. That a high view of God's sovereignty will cause pastors to lead Christians to die for the sake of the nations. Does that got you interested? A high view of God's sovereignty will cause pastors to lead Christians to go die for the sake of the nation. So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about what do we do with Acts 12? If he's right, then that's one of the things I need to prepare us for as a church. I believe if you think about Paul and Barnabas coming into Jerusalem at the beginning and leaving out of Jerusalem at the end, and they got John Mark with them, whose house they were meeting in to pray, that this would have been, these events would have had an effect of emboldening, of, of, of giving courage to Paul and Barnabas as they get ready to take the gospel to unreached people groups and wicked hair like kings all over the world. It would have emboldened them. It would have encouraged them. And what about us? Shouldn't it do the same thing for us? Listen, listen, we read Acts 12. We're making ourselves aware of what's going on in the world. And here's what we know. The word of God will go forward. God has power to deliver you like he did Peter. God may want you to die like James. But the word of God is going to move forward regardless. And those who oppose it will be eaten by worms and die. You know, so many, we've been talking a lot because of where we're at in Acts. We've been talking a lot about unreached people groups. And last week, uh, Dustin laid out some things about unengaged people groups, over a million in population, unreached people groups, unengaged. And, and, and if, you, if, you, if, you, if you think about why those places, why they're unreached, why they're unengaged, and so many of these places, these unreached people groups, these unengaged people groups are in places, Herod-like places, places where it's hard to get there because the government doesn't want you there. Because they threaten death and imprisonment and other things. These are, these are the kind of places, Act 12, where these unreached people groups are. What do we do with that? How does Acts 12 encourage us in the midst of that? Let me explain these handouts I gave you just a minute ago. These handouts, there's a hundred of them across the room right now. There's a hundred of them. And it's the 50 largest unreached people groups and the 50 largest unengaged people groups, and everybody has, those 100 largest are all over the room right now, okay? Now, if you think about this, if you got, you know, according to Joshua Project, again, take it with, with some leverage here, uh, uh, with some leeway, excuse me, and if Joshua Project says 16,000 people groups, 7,000 people groups are unreached with the gospel, in those 7,000 people groups is about 3 billion people. 7,000 people groups, 3 billion people shoved into that 7,000 different people groups. But if you take just 50 of those people groups, just 50 of them, the 50 largest, you got half that population, 1.5 billion people. 
So over 1.5 billion people spread out across the room in about 100 different people groups that are the largest unreached and the largest unengaged around the world. And here's how I want to close. I want to close one by encouraging you to take that sheet home. Uh, if you have your own, I, I didn't mean to give you whichever one it is. So, so just by God's sovereignty, that's the one you got. I encourage you to take it home. Um, were there any extras, by the way? Oh, you got some extras? Give it to a wife or a husband on their way out, uh, Alan, if you have an extra. Um, or give it to your wife, there you go. <laughs> I want you to take those home, and I want to encourage you all week long to be praying for that people group. Will you do that? And think about how powerful this is, that the Church of Jesus Christ over the next week is praying for 1.5 billion people, the 100, uh, uh, excuse me, the 50 largest unreached people groups, the 50 largest unengaged people groups, and they're just being prayed for and interceded for all week long. Would you do that? I want to encourage you to protect those sheets and, and really spend time in prayer. That's the main thing I want to tell you. And secondly, I just want to lead us in a time of prayer now. It's getting kind of late here, so let me just lead us in a time of prayer. Let's, let's pray for these people, okay? Uh, I'm going to take just a moment to just be quiet all around the room. Um, you can get on your knees if you want to. If you've got a baby in your arms, a little rest as you can walk around. Whatever you want to do. Move chairs around. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of time to pray specifically for that people group. It's a powerful thing all over the room. Prayers going to God like incense before him over these people. You just take time on your own to pray for those people. And then just a couple minutes and then I'm going to come in and close this out in prayer, okay? Let's take time to do that now. Let's pray.
God, we need you to embolden us. By your word, God, in a supernatural way, by your Holy Spirit, embolden us, God, to take your gospel in these dark places. Lord, so many of these people groups represented across the room, God, are in these hard, hairy-like places. God, we have confidence in you. David said about you that through you, he could jump over a wall. And God, I pray that you would fill us with that same confidence, Lord. Lord, I pray for the believers, the minuscule amount of believers that, that, that in some of these places that are spread. God, I pray that you would strengthen them. Strengthen those believers, God. Fill them with courage that they're not alone, God. That even if nobody on the planet seems to understand, they have you. And you promise you never leave them or forsake them. You promise that you would be with them always to the end of the age. God, even now, would you fill them with strength? And God, I pray that you save souls in these places. God, raise up your all nations bride. We long for the day to see every nation, tribe, and tongue bow down to you, singing songs to you together. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. You are worthy, Lord. Raise up your all nations broad. We love you, Lord. We commit these things to you. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.